Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now, here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Good morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles if you brought a copy of the Scripture with you and open with me to the book of Philippians in chapter 3. We're going to bring chapter 3 to a conclusion today and kind of pick up um, where we left off right in mid-thought where we left off last week as we look at this. Let me introduce the message to you this way. Tom, now that's not, if your name's Tom, I'm not talking about you, it's another Tom. But Tom was, uh, he was standing at the front of a church on a Saturday spring early afternoon right beside his best man and the pastor. And it's a big day for Tom. And the pastor did what pastors do. They start meddling. And the pastor leaned over to him and said, Tom, how do you feel it? Tom said, oh, I feel great. I feel incredible. By the way, rarely do grooms say that. But I feel great. I feel incredible. After all, this last year of work is finally coming to an end. We've been engaged for a year. We've done pre-marriage. We've planned a wedding. And all my labors are finally coming to a conclusion. My work's almost over. I'm about to be married. Yeah, that's exactly what the pastor did, too, is he kind of gave him a sideways smile and said, Tom, the work's not about to be over. It's just getting started. Because, hey, listen, the day you say I do is not the checkered line finish. It's not the checkered flag at the finish line. It's the starter's pistol. Because marriage is not a destination. It's a journey. Is it any wonder then that the Apostle Paul and all of the analogies he uses to describe the Christian life, one of the most picturesque and appropriate of those is the analogy of marriage. He details it probably most prominently in Ephesians chapter 5, which we'll not cover today unless I just go on a rabbit trail. But uh, he kind of details this life of being a Christ follower and compares it to the life of a husband and wife together. Because in the same way marriage, getting married is not a destination but a journey. The Christian life is not a, hey, I'm a Christian now. I've, just, I've, I've come to this place of praying and giving my life to Christ. Now I'm finished. Now the work's done. Now, no, listen, it's not like that. It also is a journey. The day a person yields their life to Christ, they begin a quest of becoming for the rest of their life. That's what Paul talks about here today as he lays out for us a model and he digs into this idea of pressing on. So I want to show you how Paul might answer the question. If you asked him the question, what does it take to really experience, to become, to know the fullness of what God's called me to as a Christ follower? He would give you three different set of instructions. We're going to look at those this morning. We're going to tie them around these verses that we've looked at uh, or that we're going to look at today in chapter 3 beginning in verse 12 and going down through verse 21. So let me invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Philippians 3, beginning in the 12th verse. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Would you pause right there? Father, I I pray even in these moments that you would open our minds that we might understand and that you would take the Word of God and you would apply it to our hearts so that you might shape and mold us and conform us to the image of Christ. Would you, Lord, help this to become real to us and not just an exercise of studying words, but would you do what you've always promised to do? Would you accomplish that which you designed your Word to do, that it would not return void? And then would you find our response to the Word of God? Would you find it pleasing to you and receive it? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You be seated. Thank you for standing. And uh, hey, if you want to follow along on those three directives, you can do so on the app. There's an outline there. Uh, As we look at this message, uh, simply entitled In Pursuit of Faith. If you don't have the app and you'd like the notes or you'd like to be able to follow along anyway, if you'll just text the word notes to the number on your screen, we'll send you an outline there. Can Can I just do an excursus a little bit? I'm a little bit out of order. Is it okay for me to just pause for this? Just give me a little parenthesis for a second. Inez, I don't know if this is going to work. You're on the wrong side of the church, sister. I'm just, my whole balance is off right now. I feel like I need to turn around and preach another direction. It's just throwing me off. It's your fault. So if the message is terrible, no, 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 you said right there. I need to, I need to cover in case the message is off. All right. So if it's off, it's on you. Okay. I just want no pressure. Just sit there and pray for me. All right. Now, in all seriousness, I love you. <laughs> I was going to say to you, for those of you, uh, I've looked out uh, in this service, more so than the last service, so many of you have children with you and all. Can I say to you, thank you. I know as a, as a I'm a grandparent now, but as a, as a parent, I know that sometimes that was a little more stressful and uh, it would be just as easy for you to just sit at home this morning uh, and not come and not have to worry about the young. You could have sent them to their room with an ugly look on your face and stuff, and, and you, but you didn't. You came and you brought them. So let me just say to you, thank you. And if they squirm or they get a little loud, don't you worry about them a lick. All right, is that fair enough? Close parentheses, back to the Word. Let me give you this first directive if I could do that. I want you to see with me, first of all, Paul would say, if you wanted to know how to pursue faith, he would say to you, first of all, you need to, number one, press on for His glory. Press on for His glory. Now, as I read that in verse 12, uh, as we started this section, you might have thought, man, that feels like we're kind of in between thoughts. And the reason is, is because, well, we were sort of in between thoughts. See, he's building in verse 12 on what he's just argued uh, in the previous verses that we studied last week. Uh, Let's don't take all of them, but let's go back up and look at verses 10 and 11 and see, if you will, with me, kind of what's the context of this charge or this statement that he makes in verse 12. Paul says, you'll recall, he says, I consider all of these accomplishments in my life but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, so that I might, verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, I desire to inherit the full promise of eternity with Christ. That's his big idea. Now that sets the stage for verse 12, which says not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What is Paul talking about when he says, I've not yet obtained uh, what it is I'm after. Now, some folks think that the Christian life uh, is really a journey, uh, um, a sojourn, a process of going from lost to saved. But the moment I pray and give my life to Christ, I've arrived. Not so. If so, Paul would have had no reason to say that I've not already obtained it. Because Paul was saved. You know that, right? He had been converted. If you're taking notes, jot down Acts chapter 9. On the road to Damascus, Paul, with uh, arrest warrants in hand for Christ followers, is on a, he's on a bounty hunter mission to head out and arrest Christians and bring them and charge them for trying to drag people away from the, 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 what he believed, the fidelity to the Jewish faith, drag them away to this errant idea of pursuing some itinerant rabbi who had been crucified and on his way there a bright light the scripture says shone around them and a voice called out to him and said Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and he said who are you 
And he says, I'm Jesus, the one whom you're persecuting. Now get up. And at that moment, Paul is converted. He sends, he sends Saul, Paul, same guy, sends him to a place where he waits, blinded for three days until a prophet comes to him and causes a, uh, speaks to him and the scales fall off his eyes. He's baptized uh, in evidence of his conversion and begins to associate with the brethren and to grow in his faith and God used him powerfully when Paul says I've not yet obtained it he can't talk about the moment he became a Christian because that's already happened when he says I've not yet obtained it Paul Paul had it's not his hope of one day being with Jesus he's not hoping to somehow earn standing or see Christ he was fully convinced that he was going to see Christ he's already told us that Philippians 1 in verse 23 Paul says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He said, oh, I'm in a difficult place. Part of me wants to go on and be with Jesus, which I know I'll do as soon as I leave here. I'm going to be with Christ. He's fully convinced. He's not trying to earn his way. He's not trying to work his way up the apostle ladder. It's none of those things. He knows he's accomplished. He knows he's got, uh, he's got a, a home with Christ. He's going to see Jesus one day. He's not fearing death, nor does he sense a need to earn his salvation. In fact, when he says, I've not yet obtained it, but I press on, he's not thinking about the beginning of the Christian life or the end of the Christian's life. But in reality, he's talking about the substance or the living of the Christian life itself. Therefore, what Paul says is instructive for you and I because it reminds us, as it reminded him, we've not yet arrived. Hey, listen, friend, if you've been a Christian for more than a minute, you're not what you once were. But now listen, if you get another day to live, you're not what you will be. You're in process. You're That's what Paul says. He says, I press on in order to gain that which is not yet mine, but I'm in pursuit of and will become mine. He says, I've not yet arrived. I've not, the word there says become perfect. Now we think of perfect, we think, wow, that's a crazy word. It's a good word though. It literally means in context here, I've not been brought to completion. I've not fulfilled my days. I've not done everything that God created me for. I've not yet finished my race. Therefore, he says he presses on so that he can lay hold of that for which he was laid hold of by Christ. Here's what he says. I want to lay hold of. That word literally means to obtain or to win or to gain. So think a contest. Think, uh, think of an athletic event. Think of a race where one person has to run faster than all of the others so they can get there and get the, the wreath, the uh, victor's crown so that they can accomplish. He says, I've, I've been pursuit of this. I've not yet gotten there, but man, I'm on the trail. I am not yet perfect. I've not finished my race, but I am in hard pursuit of it. He seeks to gain that for which Christ always desired to give him. I am pressing on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, he said, God's not being miserly about this and I'm not trying to do something to somehow impress God. God has a plan and purpose for me. God has a promise for me. And I'm simply trying to accomplish, receive, gain that which God has already set aside and put my name on. Man, that's good news for you and I. Because that means you and I are not having to set out in order to impress God or to try to achieve something for God. But God, when he saved you, already set aside, set apart, and created you and had a promise for you of that which he desired to do in your life, through your life, and for you in this life. Notice though, if Paul is seeking to obtain this, then he's not passive, but he's active. That's the language. He's not sitting back. This is the attitude some people would say. They would say, well, if God's got something for me and God never denies himself, all I got to do is sit back here in my lounge chair and, and uh, put on some suntan oil and just wait on God to bless me. That's interesting. It's just not the Bible. See, we're not passive in this process. Paul wasn't passive. He said, I strive, I strain, I work, I compete in order to lay hold of that which God laid hold of me for. Look at verse 13 with me. He reiterates it and says, brethren, by the way, that's a gender neutral idea. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. 
forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Paul says there's one thing that I do and I do it consistently every day. One thing I do, not one thing I did or one thing I'm going to do. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind. What did Paul have to forget? And did he forget like I forgot where I put my keys this morning? Or did he forget in another way? Well, it's not a mental thing. He's saying, though, I'm, in, I'm intentionally choosing to forsake, to set aside, hey, listen, both achievements and failures, both wins and losses, both accomplishments and where I've come up short. I am setting those things aside. I am not defined by my achievements. I'm not defined by my failures. I am pressing forward to be defined by that which Christ has defined me as. Did, how do you know Christ, Paul was setting aside his achievements? Because he told us in the verses before this in chapter 3. He said, man, he said, if achievements were good, I've got them all. He's like, I was a Hebrew among Hebrews, born of the tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, trained at the best schools at the feet of Gamaliel. He said, I was a Pharisee. Uh, I was zealous, a persecutor of the church. And he said, if you looked at the law and laid it out under the law, I would be righteous. And he said, all these things I count as loss for the, for the joy, for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. It's not his achievements he held on. It also wasn't his failures. Paul acknowledged his, uh, his past. He said, I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm the arche, the first, the most prominent, the biggest sinner in the room. He's like, because of that, I could sit back and go, God, God, is a, God is just weird to save the biggest sinner in the room. But instead, I go, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God can save the biggest sinner, and he does so, so that the next biggest sinner, I have a little hope. If he'd save Paul, he certainly could save me. That's the idea. He says, I have forgotten what lies behind achievements and failures, and I press forward, literally, to strive or to strain. I compete, I contest, I claw my way forward, competing for new achievements. So if we allowed Paul to speak for himself, we would have to say Paul is a man who is never satisfied. He's not satisfied with his own holiness. He's not satisfied with his own effectiveness. He's not satisfied with the status of gospel advance. He's not, however, looking at those things despondent or discouraged or dejected it's none of those things we know that because Paul is the same guy who tells us hey you ought to rejoice rejoice now rejoice always rejoice in everything he's not sitting curled up in the corner of a dark room somewhere lamenting about how bad things are about how far short he falls he's not rehearsing all of his failures or giving God his resume he's not resting and he's not crying He's simply rejoicing and moving forward. He is, he's found a place where he's not content with the where, where things are, and yet he's at perfect peace. You could say he has found a place of being a joyful Christian. So let me give you a statement maybe to hang on to. The joyful Christian life, if you're looking for something like that, is one of being happily discontent. Not a malcontent. But discontent, the joyful Christian life is a life of being happily discontent. Things are good. Now listen, that's a big deal because some of you may be listening to me and you're going, I'll be happy just as soon as I get to contentment when everything's in its place and everything's done and I've accomplished everything and I have everything I need and everything's perfect, then I'll finally be happy. You're going to be miserable your entire life. You're welcome. Do, do you know why you'll be miserable? You never get to a place of contentment until you're translated from this life to the next. You never get there. There's always more God has for you. You can't get there from here. If your joy, if your happiness depends on you accomplishing that here, you're going to be miserable because you can't get there from here. Joyfulness comes in a happy discontent. I was thinking about this. I was praying over the message this morning and trying to think, where do I see that in my own life? And a church I was leading several years back, we had a banner 
year of baptism. I mean, it was a record year. We had never baptized anybody, as many people as we did that year. It was, it was incredible. It was over the top. God had done some really cool stuff, and we got to see it. And Tuesday came, that staff meeting day. And I'm sitting down with the staff, and I'm talking to them. Man, they're high-fiving. They're excited about where things are. I mean, because it's a big deal for us. And then, and then they're just kind of going, they're, they're like, man, what a great thing. Look at all that that happened. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what? If we'll tweak this and we'll adjust this and we'll do this and we'll press this and promote this, then we can get to more. We can do more. And they're like, can't you ever be satisfied? Here's the answer. No. I'm happily discontent. Am I glad to be a part of a church that sends people around the world and like we're going we're gonna to send out another family? Now, am I happy about that? I am. Am I discontent? I am because I want dozens more to join them. You say, man, you're trying to run people off? Mm-mm, I'm trying to send folks out. Why? Because if God gives us till tomorrow, that means that 150,000 plus people around the world died today without Christ, without knowing him, and without ever having heard his name. And that's not good enough. Paul said, I look at my own life, I look at my own growth, I look at my own satisfaction, I look at the status of the gospel, and I'm happily discontent. Yes, I rejoice, but I want to press on. I want to grab more. And then he tells us that's really how we ought to think. Look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says there's something God's got in store. Therefore, we, ought, we have to continue to press on toward that. Now, he tells us this is a mindset for us. Look at verse 15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude... And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. <laughs> Here's what he said. He said, think this way and, and get after it. And if while thinking this way and getting after it, if you're a little bit off, don't worry. God will make adjustments in the process. Have this attitude. And if it's imperfect, don't wait for it to get perfect to have it. Just get after what you know and let God make adjustments along the way. If anyone has a different attitude, God will bring that to mind. He will reveal it to you also. And then verse 16. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. This standard, this, uh, this attitude, this, um, this mindset that we have attained to. Let's live by that. Let us keep living by. The word literally means to conform or to behave. Let us order our steps in our lives. It's a picture word. In fact, in the original language, it's used to describe military units in battle array. So um, I don't know if you've ever studied this. I used to, when I was a kid, I played a game called Stratego. Yeah, that was it. And then there's, there's other... I know I'm old. They probably have that in an electronic version now. But anyway, there were other war games and stuff. And you'd get ready to go to battle in these things. And you would line up your forces in a certain way so that you could advance this unit or advance. That's the way it works in military battlefield stuff. And, uh, and you've got this group in reserve. And they can come up and do that to arrange everything in such a way to prosecute the battle. That's the idea here. Let us all live in this way. Let's order our lives and the steps of our lives. Let's arrange our behaviors. Let's set ourselves in this way so that we can fulfill, we could press on, we can achieve that which God has called us to achieve. Paul said, in order to get there, we've got to focus on one thing. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and striving, stretching, straining, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on so that I can achieve the upward call that God has for me in my life. Now, here's the question. What one thing has God told you that you need to forget and to strain for? What one area? Yeah, but Chris, I've got so many areas. Yeah, but you can't do anything with so many areas. So what one thing? What's that one thing that you can do? What's that one area you could focus on today? You've got a thousand other days to focus on maybe a thousand other things perhaps, but what you don't have is the ability to do all thousand of those things in this day. What one thing must you forget and strain for in order to fulfill what God's called you to do? That's what Paul says he focuses on here, that we would press on for this one thing. Now, let me show you the second idea here, not just the second directive, not just that we're directed to press on for his glory, but secondly, we're told to draw strength from the tribe, to draw strength from the tribe. When I say the tribe, what I mean by that is use guys and me and us. 
and we. We're a family, we're a group, we're a tribe. And here's the idea, is that there's strength to be gained, a necessity for, and strength to be gained from us for and toward one another. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus makes a bold statement, a prophetic statement. He said that he would build the church and that the church would be victorious in everything it did in such a way that not even the gates of hell could prevent the church's advance. It was the church, not the individual. He didn't say, he didn't say, Chuck will be able to do this. He said the church would be able to do this. It's the church, it's us together. We have been given that. In Ephesians 4, Paul lays out for us and gives us a structure for the church. And he says that God's even arranged it in such a way that the church as it grows could to become would be equipped and would have examples from apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers who would equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the maturity of the faith, to a complete man, to a mature man, to the fullness of the image of Christ. And then he said in 1 Timothy 3, he tied the qualities or the qualifications of a qualified leader of a pastor to, to minister. He tied those qualifications to, um, to that pastor's example. Can he live this out in order to fulfill that as an example to follow? In fact, we even looked last week at 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12 on Sunday night where Paul instructed, directed Timothy, be an example to all who believe in your speech, in your conduct, in your manner of life, in all of these areas. Be an example to them so that they can follow. The point is, is that you only have to be an example to others if there's others to be an example to. That's why God's arranged for us to be part of a group, a tribe, the church. Now, I know I've met people that have said, well, you know, I don't have to be a part of a church in order to love God. Well, I don't have to put on clothes to go to the mailbox either, but it helps. I'm just telling you. And here's what I'm, here's what I'm, yes, praise the Lord. Here's what I'm telling you. Here's what I'm saying to you. God's arranged it in such a way for you to find fullness of life. And it requires being part of a tribe because you can't get the strength you need apart from the tribe. We draw strength from one another. What are some of these essentials to drawing strength from the tribe? Three of them I'll give you. The first one is it requires determination. Determination, that's another word for a decision. We determine, we make a commitment, we agree to, we lock in on the idea of being part of the tribe. Look at verse 17. Paul says, brethren, join in following my example. It's, a, it's an imperative. He says, you choose, determine, uh, obey, you follow after. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern, the example that you have in us. He says, join after my example. In other words, we together, we must determine, we must choose, and we must obey. We make the decision, I am with the tribe. And the tribe is how I'm going to draw strength. The tribe is how I'm going to commit. The tribe is how we're going to accomplish what God's called us to do. The first thing is determination. Secondly, it's discernment. Paul gives a, he gives a, a positive negative set of examples of the text here. He gives an example. He says, follow after me, follow after my example and the example of those who are following after me. But then he says, don't follow after those who've gone the other way. Those who follow in the example of Paul and those who choose to live according to their desires. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, for many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are, this phrase arrests me that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. He uses all of these descriptors to describe a group of people who he said are enemies of the cross of Christ. They are the many. Now, who is he talking about? Is he talking about is he talking about those mean old agnostic and atheist people who live outside of the church family? Well, I don't, think, I don't think so. If he were talking about them, I mean, obviously you don't pattern your life after somebody who's not in your tribe. He's talking about other dudes who are, who've got fish stickers on the back of their car, but they have nothing else that matches up to Jesus. They've got, hey, listen. Oh, that'll bless me. They've got posters that say Jesus 2020 while they break the blessed law and, and desecrate a national capital. He says, don't do that. 
you're welcome. That wasn't even in the notes. Listen, he says, don't follow after them because their walk does not match up. Follow after the example. I'm grateful he didn't say, hey, I want you to follow after Tom, not the same Tom that got married. Uh, don't follow after Tom, Bob, and Mary and, 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 uh, and, and then choose to follow after these other guys. He says, look at the way they live their lives and pattern yourself after those examples from, listen, within the tribe while avoiding those within the tribe who are not living out the example. Look how a person lives and pattern your life after the encouragement that you see in how they live. Now catch that, that's a big deal. Because that means there are some people around you, you can look at it and you can go, man, I need a prayer life like that brother. I need to love my family like that sister. I need to, man, I need to uh, give myself over to teaching like that couple. I need to serve like that person. And you find examples, people who are living out the Christian faith that you can pattern yourself after, while at the same time choosing intentionally not to pattern yourself after people who are going the other direction. Why? Because you become like the people you hang out with. Now, listen, when my mama told me that growing up, I hated it. But she said that the crowd we associate with affects how we act and who we become. <laughs> By the way, when she told me that growing up, I still argue against that. And I know better. But when she told me that growing up, she said, don't hang out with that boy. You'll become just like him. I said, I will not. She said, you will too. You'll be obstinate and rebellious just like him. I said, uh-uh, will not. She said, you will, and you'll go down a wrong road. I said, I will not, and I did. Why? Because you can't hang out with the wrong people too long before you become as wrong as the wrong people. Now listen, had she been looking for a verse, she would have found this one, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, which says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Paul said, put your eyes on the people who are going the right direction and lock in on them. You need them to know how to do it. Some folks, they're hopeful that their image or their age or their notoriety or their reputation or their resume would be enough uh, to get them through and that you could follow after them. I mean, after all, I'm old, so you probably ought to follow me. But you ought not, if Paul's right, and I believe he is, you ought not follow after a person because they've got gray hair, a nice car, or a seminary degree. You follow after a person because they're walking out what Christ said it looks like to walk with him. And when you find that person, you lock in and allow them to be an encouraging example in your life. Why? Because many walk in a different way. And Paul describes them as enemies of the cross. These are people who subtly battle against the substitutionary work of Christ. That's what he did on the cross. They battle against that. And he says, when you see that, war against it, separate yourself from it. Now, who in the world would war against the cross of Christ? I mean, who could find himself as an enemy? Someone who would say, salvation is by grace through faith and you need to do A, B, and C so that you'll be saved. Wait, we've been studying about that in other places. On Sunday nights especially, we've been studying about that. About, hey, this is the gospel plus this. It's good news. No, no, no. It was good news. When you did the plus this, it became bad news. And listen, those who plussed it, catch this, became enemies of the cross. Well, I mean, I just, I'm kind of undecided on this. No, you're not undecided. God decided. He decided that since you wasn't here, then you were an enemy of here. You were there. He said, many have gone the other way and become enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction? That's how you know how God judges their action. He says, their end, they will be destroyed because their God is their appetite. Appetite, it speaks of physical desires. In other words, they said, hey, I want to. I like it. That makes me happy. And because I like it, it makes me happy. It must be good for me because God wants everyone to be happy. Right there in Second Opinions chapter 2. It's right there. God wants people to be happy. You can't find that anywhere in there. But because they pursue and worship after that which makes them happy over necessarily what God said was required of them to be holy, 
They've gone the wrong way. And he says, don't follow after their example. He says, their glory is in their shame. In other words, they boast in that which is shameful or abhorrent to God. And they set their minds on earthly things. They choose to live for the things that are imported in this world, ignoring the rest. Their shame is in their, their glory is in their shame. You know, Chris, I go after the things that make sense to me. And, you know, our culture today and, and the world says today that uh, marriage can look any way I want it to look. And as long as it's, uh, as long as it really, as long as two people really love one another, everything's good. Hey, listen, I had a dog that absolutely loved me once. We did not get married. I kind of loved the dog. I spent a lot of money on it. And it loved me. We didn't get married. Why? It was not God's design. That would be ridiculous. Hey, listen, friends. If I can figure that out with a pooch, the rest of us ought to be able to figure it out with boys and girls. Hey, listen. The same thing goes for I've got 12 wives or I've, got, I've had a wife and then had another wife and then had another wife. And when I, get, when I get tired of one, I just swap it out and get a new one. That's not God's design. It might be your appetite, but it is not God's design. Who glory in what, that which God abhors. <laughs> Y'all not ready for that. Last night, I, I was listening in on a, <clears throat> a Facebook conversation between a pastor and some other dude, not this pastor, it was at another place. In fact, this pastor, he set such a good example. He said what he had to say. This other guy started trolling him, and then he just stayed quiet. And he went on interacted with his church members, and this other troll was just getting more and more frustrated. I go, man, that's a guy I need to be like. But I was preaching for him in my response to his Facebook. I didn't click on anything, but I was preaching for him. Here's what he said. He said, uh, he said abortion is not health care. And this other brother went nuts. He went nuts because he said, well, it is health care. And who are you to put your crazy standards in, and apply them to this person and to tell this person? How are you, who are you to say, as a white man, who are you to say that this isn't the best thing for people of color to help our community so that we can achieve and become? Who do you think you are say that just was just nailing on him? I'm, gonna go, I'm, I'm preaching at the computer. I'll tell you who he is. He somebody read the book. The book said it's not, it's not a choice for you to make once it gets a heartbeat. It's not a choice for you to make once you've made someone who one day will make a choice for God. Once you come to that place and a child has been conceived, your choices stop. Your stewardship begins. Now listen, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. I just grabbed two low-hanging fruit sins. But you might have an appetite for some other respectable sin. Well, you know, I think lying on your taxes is fine. After all, why give it to the government? Well, because God said lying's bad. You don't get to choose on that. He wasn't open for a vote. He, he went ahead and chiseled it in the rock so nobody would go around and mess with it. Well, I ain't honoring my mom and daddy. My daddy was a buzzard. Well, unfortunately, it's not your call because honor your father and mother for this is right, that your days may be long upon the earth. My mama used to quote that one now and again, too. She said, I brought you in. She said the same thing. Y'all's parents said the same thing, too. Hey, listen, you don't get to vote on those things. God said, yeah, but I have a different appetite. Bless you. None of that matters. What matters is what God said. Paul said, pattern your life after those who are in pursuit of what God said. He said to us that you must have determination, you must have discernment. And then he goes on and says it also requires discipline. It's essential in the tribe that you have discipline. Paul says, join in my example and in the example of those who walk accordingly because many walk in opposition. Now the word walk, as you find it in the Bible, you know this, uh, speaks of our manner of life or our lifestyle. Nobody throws perfect strikes across the plate all the time. But he's talking about the direction we're traveling together because you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna hit a 
You're going to hit a batter now and again, and they're going to take a base, and you need to say you're sorry, repent, and start over. Okay, that's going to happen. You're going to throw a wild pitch. But if the manner of your life is not tracking in this direction, then you need a different walk. Here's what he said. Walk according to the example of them. Build the manner of your life after the example of those who are pursuing Christ. Because that is essential. You have to discipline yourself for that because you could go into a different area. It's not what we say but what we do that ultimately matters. Let me give it to you in a statement. It is the faithful walk, not a word about faith, that determines our standing and hope before God. It's a faithful walk, not what we say about faith. See, you can buy all the t-shirts and the bumper stickers and the little fish thingies and you can give money to and say that you're a member of and all of that other stuff all day long, but it's how you live, not what you say that determines where you stand and what hope you have before God. And that's simply what Paul is trying to tell us here. See, living the Christian life is not without challenges and pitfalls. In fact, the church is built in such a way that it invites challenges and pitfalls. <laughs> what, who under heaven would come up with an idea of building an organization and say, no, I don't want the qualified guy. Give me the one that's least qualified. And yet that's exactly who Jesus entrusted the kingdom to. He said, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. I came for broke people. I came for people who were busted and broken, who were destroyed, that I could rebuild and build up to reflect the image of God. He didn't, he didn't go after a bunch of guys who had it all together. He said, went after guys, and then he helped them get it all together. That's why the church is so messed up. We invite people to mess it up on a regular basis. We go, hey, you know what? You're a misfit toy. Welcome. You're in good company. We're all misfit toys. That's the mayor. The guy standing up there facing the wrong direction. He's the mayor of the land of misfit toys. We're all misfit. That's exactly right. If it weren't, you couldn't get in. I'm sorry, y'all went quiet for just a second there. If, if God didn't take broken people, you'd be on the outside looking in. Because we're all broken. That's why we need one another. Because listen, you can't become by yourself. You're someone else's example and someone else is your example. You're theirs, they're yours. You're someone's encouragement and they're yours. You're the last line of defense of accountability for someone and they are yours. You're the lift underneath someone's wings and they are yours. It's why we're in here and why we're called to draw strength from the tribe. I need to move on. Let me show you this third idea I want you to see. Paul says he gives us the directive to press on for his glory. He tells us to draw strength from the tribe. And then number three, he says, look expectantly toward the Lord's return. Look expectantly toward the Lord's return. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. Someone once said that Christians seem to be so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. I've heard that. But now, here's what's true. You've got to be a little heavenly minded or you won't be of any earthly good. In fact, throughout human history, those who've made the greatest impact have been those who sought to steward the world as servants of Christ in furtherance of Christ's agenda. Those who really matter, who've really made a difference, are those who said, God's put me right here for this purpose, for this reason, to affect this change, to bring about this result, and it's for His glory that I'm in pursuit of doing it, because one day I'll stand before Him. And when I stand before Him, I want Him to be pleased I want to know I've lived my life to please him so Paul gives us four reminders to tell us about that first of all he tells us that he says your citizenship is in heaven now to be a citizen to be a part of a city we talked about this when we began this there was an identity of a person with the city from which they came from these folks they said we're we're from Philippi it was, a, it was that Roman outpost. They said, we're from Philippi. We're Philippians. And it mattered. It was an identity. Here's what he says. Your citizenship is in heaven. 
you wander around in the world and you go, man, it just doesn't feel right around here. I mean, things are just wonky. I mean, they're just not good. It's just, it's so stressful. It's so struggle. Yeah, because you don't belong here. You're on loan. You're here temporary. You're just here for a minute and then you're gone forever. But while you're here, you've got something to do. Paul says, remember your citizenship's in heaven. Then he said, remember, Jesus is returning for his own. Jesus is coming back to get his people. That's what he tells us. And that's why, that's why he says we need to look expectantly. Did you notice in verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I was trying to come up with a picture word for that, but here it is. It's the kid at Christmas. Is it Christmas yet? Is it Christmas yet? Is it Christmas yet? Is it Christmas yet? Can I open my presents? Is it Christmas yet? Oh, I'm waiting. When's it going to be Christmas? It's the 23rd. How many more days is that? Two more days? Two more days? I can't wait. Tomorrow's the 24th. Woo, it's midnight. Oh, it's the 24th. Oh, it's almost. Is it Christmas yet? That's eagerly expecting and waiting. I know some folks that if Jesus came and knocked on the door, they'd be like, who are you and why are you here? When he says you ought to be sitting there going, is it Jesus yet? Is it Jesus yet? Is Jesus here yet? Is he coming yet? Is he here yet? He's coming. We have to eagerly expect. Paul says that we earnestly, eagerly wait for a Savior to come for us. Your citizenship's in heaven. Jesus is returning for his own. Thirdly, he says your earthly suffering will become heavenly satisfaction. In other words, hey, it's tough there. I get it. Don't worry. That's not the end of the story. You will be transferred from humiliation to glory just like he was. Now listen, I don't know what all that means, just like he was. But I do know this much. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Listen fast so you can get out of here and get to lunch. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. John commenting on this, he says this, he says, Beloved, now we're children of God, and it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him. Because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he was pure. Did John give us any great insights? Yeah. He said, we don't know what it's going to be like. You go, shucks, I really wanted to know. Here's Here's what we know. When he comes, your life will look like his. Your image will look like his your holiness will look like his your walk will look like his you will look like his when he comes and he says and because of that verse three because of that because of that hope we we earnestly prepare for his coming now again how do you how do you even articulate that I, so i told the first service i said i i was gonna say when I used to date, but I mean, but I dated this week, so I mean, I can't really say that. But I, when I was in high school and I went to go pick up Jody for a date on a Saturday and we had an arrangement and all, I was like this, is it Christmas yet? Is it Christmas yet? And because I knew I'm going to see her, I prepared. I took my weekly bath every week before I picked her up. I mean, I took a bath and put on smell good and deodorant and everything. And I didn't show up in a ball cap with nappy head. I mean, I went ahead and washed my hair, got my mullet all tuned up and everything. I mean, I was full on preparing, smell good the whole thing. Why? I'm about to see her. If I do that for one human relationship, how much more preparation for when the king of glory comes and you're sitting there. Is it Jesus yet? Is it Jesus yet? Is it Jesus yet? John said, because we know he's coming and because we know we're going to be like him, we, we earnestly prepare. We purify ourselves. We fix our hope on him to be like him because he is pure. And here's the fourth thing, the fourth reminder. He says, when he comes, you'll reign with him as he reigns. In other words, you're not coming. I know the idea. Well, we're going to come and then I'm going to float around on a cloud with a harp. I can't even play a harp. I'm going to be unemployed in heaven. They don't need a preacher. They've got the word. Why in the world would that happen? I don't play harps or anything. You're not unemployed. You'll be worshiping Jesus and reigning with him. Yeah, but what does that look like? I mean, I thought Jesus was already reigning. Oh, y'all give me two more minutes. Jot down Hebrews 2 and verse 8. 
The writer of Hebrews says, You've put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So, friend, here's what I'm saying to you. Jesus does already reign. He's in charge. It just doesn't look like it yet. But one day it's going to look exactly like it. Now, if you're trying to figure that out, I've used this analogy once before, so I'm going to give it to you and I'm going to close. When you leave out of here today and you turn left or right out of the parking lot, if you turn left and you go up to 64 and you get on the highway and you start going direction, someone from the state of North Carolina has put a friendly reminder up there and a rectangular looking sign that says speed limit, whatever it is, 55, 65, 35, wherever you are. There's a speed limit. You say, I don't believe in speed limits. I go as fast as I want to go, as often as I want to go, or as slow as I want. It doesn't really matter. I go where I want to go. Hey, who's, who's to tell me that? Well, the dudes in Raleigh, that's who's to tell you that. They set the speed limit. Well, I just don't believe in speed limits. It don't matter if you believe in it or not, Hoss, it's still there. You don't believe me, go as fast as you can. God has ordained some dudes called the North Carolina Highway Patrol. They will come along and let you know whether or not you're reigning yet. Because the law already exists. I don't agree with the law. It doesn't matter. It's still there. It's still there. Just like you may be on the fence trying to figure out, do I know Jesus and am I doing what he's called me to do? You can't stay on the fence. Because if you know him, you must do what he's called you to do. You must press on. You must become. You must find the right example and draw strength from the tribe. And you must look expectantly for the day when he sets everything right again. Because one day, he's coming. And for those that know him, it's a good day. Do you know him? If you don't, perhaps today would be the day that you'd, you'd yield to his voice as he calls you. Would you do that today? And if, I'm probably talking to a larger group here to say, if you're a Christ follower today... And maybe, maybe you've not been waiting expectantly. Maybe you've not been preparing diligently. Maybe you've not been disciplined or determined. And today God said, see, right there, that's the thing. That's the one thing that you need to forget and strive for. Would you commit to doing that today? Thank you for joining us today. This is Pastor Chris, and I pray that the message you've just heard has been a blessing to you directly from the heart of God. Today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God. We would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at englewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us to reach a wider audience with the life-changing message of hope in Jesus Christ. We hope you'll join us again next week, and until next time, may the Lord bless you.